Open your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 1. The first chapter of Acts, verse 12 through the end of the chapter, verse 26, will be our focal passage today as we consider the Spirit, the church, and the world selection. We talk about this idea of selection. They, the disciples, apostles, excuse me, were selecting a replacement for Judas who had betrayed the Lord and then took his own life. But what we learn here are a couple different things. We learn about the value of prayer, the value of Christian fellowship and being in relationship with one another and how to make decisions in our lives. Now, if you missed last week's, it's available on our Vimeo channel. Um, It's also available on podcasts. Those can be reached through our website. Of course, this week through our bulletin page and version, the live event with the sermon notes that you'll see on the screen as well. And Luke chapter 24, Luke who also wrote the, the book of Acts, reports to us that the disciples were continually praying between the time of the ascension and between the time of Pentecost. And here in verse 14, it says they had joined together in prayer. So we see that from the very beginning, before I even begin to read our passage this morning, that unified prayer is powerful. That's something you might want to write down, something you may want to remember, that unified prayer is powerful. It's a powerful force. We'll see prayer grow as a key in the relationship with believers in the church and the risen Lord. Jesus had given them an example of how to pray. Jesus had taught them how to pray. Jesus had commanded them how to pray. And all three of those apply to us even today as we think about what we learn from our Lord Jesus in these last years at Southview as we studied the Gospels together and following Jesus. But anytime you read the Gospels on your own. So now... In Jesus' bodily absence and still awaiting the arrival of the Holy Spirit to be an indwelling presence within all believers, the disciples, all the followers, and we're told that there's 120 here, gathered together and were constantly in prayer. Just as our series title, The Spirit, the Church, and the World, says, they were awaiting the Spirit as the church, in order that they might be on mission to the world. Their one specific purpose in prayer that we'll study today, a new apostle, teaches us a model for how to seek God's will for decisions in our lives. So if you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word, would you do that? In Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through the end of the chapter, verse 26, and we'll read together. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers." Verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers, the scripture had been fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. 
Verse 18, with reward, he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field where he fell headlong. His body burst open and his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called the field in their language, Akeldama, which is field of blood. Verse 20, for, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms. May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken from us. For one of uh, these must be a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men. Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Let's pray. God, like every Sunday, we open your word, and every Sunday we ask you to open our understanding in our hearts that we might know what you'd have us to know, that we might obey what you'd have us to obey, and we might become followers of Jesus as you desire. So as we seek to understand and study these words today, how we make decisions, how we gather together, how we pray, and your presence among us in all these things, would you speak to us? May we be encouraged May we be committed. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Well, thank you. You can be seated. You've got four points on your outline this morning, and they're all about this idea of the apostles facing their first major decision without Jesus present with them bodily. And that's the selection of a new 12th apostle to replace Judas. We heard about that in the Scripture, and we'll get there and talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But our question to apply the Scripture to our lives is, what can we learn from their decision-making? And as I've already told you, we can learn it. I told you what I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you what I'm telling you, and then I'm going to tell you what I told you, right? Just like a good reporter these days. The first is gathering. They gathered together. In verses 12, 13, and 14, we see them gathering together. They returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives where they had gone and Jesus had ascended. And it was a Sabbath day walk, so they weren't breaking any of their rules among the Jewish people. So about three quarters of a mile it was. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Now, going upstairs, we say, hey, is this the upper room where they observed the Last Supper? It could have been. There's nothing explicit that tells us that, and would it matter if it was? I don't know. Maybe it would be somehow more significant, but people uh, notice that, and you may have been one of those people. That's why I mentioned that. It was common for there to be upper rooms that folks would rent out for things, and with a larger gathering like this, they would probably not fit in one of their homes, but need someone else's home, and uh, there's even some speculation of who that might have been as well. But notice it goes on to say, Those present were, and notice the pairs and the quadruple, uh, or or the the foursomes here. So Peter and John named together, James and Andrew named together, then my Bible has a semicolon. Uh, 
Then it goes to Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew. It's as if Luke is gathering together the disciples, now called apostles, sent out ones, and saying, these four are the most important, these four are second most. And then he goes, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the son of Jelly, and Judas, the son of James. That's not Judas Iscariot. That's why there's another son of after that. And then they all join together constantly in prayer. Constantly in prayer. That first phrase, they're all joined together, is one that is one of Luke's favorite words. It's homo thumadon, homo meaning one. He used it of their unity in prayer in chapter 4. He uses it of their unity in making a decision in chapter 15. He uses it throughout his gospel. Unity, all joining together and then constantly in prayer. It's actually two words put together there, that they're busy, they're active, and that they were of one mind in their prayer. And notice what it says at the end of verse 14, along with the women. Now, this is most likely Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna, those that had followed Jesus since Luke chapter 8 that we know, helping Jesus and supporting Him by their own means. And then it specifically says, Mary the mother of Jesus and His brothers. We know that His brothers hadn't believed in Jesus during His ministry. They called Him crazy. They said, don't go there. They had a variety of other things that Scripture tells us explicitly, and we can imply that they had said. But Mark chapter 6 reports to us that He had four brothers. They were half-brothers, of course. They were conceived by His Father, not by the Holy Spirit. James was one of His brothers. Most famous one, James, the epistle in the New Testament is written by him. James, who was basically the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Judas, there's a lot of Judases, right? Okay, so this is the third one we know in this story. But Judas, Joseph, Simon, and the sisters. We know that Jesus had at least two sisters because anytime they're mentioned, it's plural. So Mary and Joseph had a large family. Jesus was just the oldest. But notice what it says next there. Well, we'll get there in a minute. We've got to ask our question. As they're gathering together, our first question is, how do others help me with decisions. We see what's happening in Scripture, but we seek to apply it to our life. And in my life, how do others help you? Well, you might say, not at all. And I might say to you, do you need to get some friends? You might say, not at all, because my friends aren't the right kind. And of course, I might say, maybe you need to get some new friends, some that can give you godly advice. The Bible tells us that there is wisdom in many counselors, especially in godly counselors, and we see wisdom in life, but there's sometimes we need someone other than ourselves to help us with decisions. And that's modeled throughout Scripture, and it's modeled again here as they come together as a group gathering to seek a unified decision, gathering to pray together that they're Corporate prayer might be more powerful than their individual prayer. They are gathering together. We don't always need somebody else, but sometimes we do. And sometimes we're better together. So let's move on to your second point in your outline. That second point is preaching. In verses 15 through 20, you have a brief little sermon that Peter preaches, and it has an inclusion that my Bible and the NIV actually puts in parentheses, verse 18 and 19, which wasn't part of the sermon, but it's Luke explaining to folks that maybe didn't 
read the Gospel of Luke, but okay, who's this Judas and why are they having to replace him? But look at that text, verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. Now, that 120 is significant. Okay, you know 12 tribes of Israel, 12 is an important number to the Israelite people, um, and so 10 times 12, yeah, okay, the other part you may not know is that you needed at least 120 Jewish males in order to form a community so that you could have a council so they could start their own village or start their own synagogue or things like this, right? So it's significant in more ways than one. So that 120, verse 16 And he said to them, brothers, the scripture had been fulfilled through the Holy Spirit, spoke long ago uh, through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide to those who arrested Jesus. How he applies what David wrote in the Psalms, we'll talk about here in a moment more. But just a quick comment on Judas. One commentator put it this way, and I don't know if I'd thought about it this way, and maybe you hadn't. There's no one in the history of humanity that had a greater opportunity and therefore was a greater failure than Judas. Only 12 men got to walk that close with Jesus during his earthly ministry, got to see him and hear him and witness his miracles. Twelve But this one, for motivations of his heart and for God's purpose, turned away and betrayed Jesus. What a wasted opportunity. And frankly, his suicide seems more about his guilt and remorse than repentance. So go on with the scripture, verse 17. He was one of our number and shared in his ministry. Verse 18 and 19 Uh, reports that, and that's that parenthetical statement, with the reward uh, for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. Now, that's debated, right? Because there's another text that says that it was the priest that bought a field, so nobody would use it. So who bought the field? I don't know. Is it material? Look at the next thing there. He fell headlong and burst in his body. Another says that he hung himself. People say, well, yeah, he can't do both. Yeah, you can. You can hang yourself first, and nobody wants to touch you. You hang there long enough that your body swells because of the heat, and then you burst. Okay, it's not mutually exclusive. I'm sorry to be gross, but it's in the text and people are worried about it. So verse 19, everyone in Jerusalem heard about it and they named the field the field of blood. No one was supposed to live there because of what happened there. It was cursed. Get back to our sermon, however. Because here's where we see Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pull one psalm from one place and another psalm from another place. And he uses what is known as analogous subject. So it was a common exegetical practice. Exegesis is the explaining or taking out of Scripture, right? That's what I do through a sermon. That's what you do when you think through Scripture. You're exegeting God's Word. And so it was a common practice in that day and time, and we even do it today, when God speaks to you by His Holy Spirit about a Scripture that's in the Bible, and He applies it to your life, and you know that the Holy Spirit is using that truth to guide you in a decision. That's an analogous subject as well. So you do it. And Peter did it here. So that's what's happening. Look at what he says there in verse 20. Peter says it's written in the book of Psalms. And he's quoting in Psalm 69, verse 13, I think, isn't it? It's probably 25, your footnote says. May this place be deserted, let no one dwell in it. Speaking of Judas' place uh, and where he took his own life, 
But then he uses another psalm. May another take his place of leadership. Psalm 109.8. He's applying this scripture by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, we're going to do something here. Your application question on your second point about preaching asks, how does the Bible function in decisions? It should function just like I told you. That when you have a decision to make in your life, you pray about it. You maybe speak to other believers about it, but you certainly read Scripture. And as you're reading Scripture, God speaks by His Holy Spirit to help you understand His will and to confirm His decision for you. I pray that you have examples of that. If you don't, then you should try it. Next time you have a major decision, say, okay, God, you know the decision that's before me? I'm going to read my Bible daily. And I'm going to spend time with you, God, and pray that you speak to me through your word to reveal your direction for me. God's word is living and active, it says. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it divides within us our will and our thinking and determines his truth for us. The Bible says that God's word is useful to teach us, correct us, rebuke us, and train us. It can guide us. It can shape us if we allow it. The Bible, whether it's from the word of a pastor preaching or whether it's from you reading it or hearing it, a friend speaking it to you, or even Scripture sung in a song that we might sing together, God speaks to us through His Word. He uses it as a tool because He's powerful. So they've gathered praying. They've heard a sermon. Now they've got a decision to make, which leads to our third point on your outline, and that is qualifying. They're going to seek based on scriptural principles, based on what they know, and based on some common sense. Frankly, there's nothing wrong with using the common sense God gave you to help make a decision. God intended you to use your common sense to make decisions, to help make this major decision, their first major decision, apart from the bodily presence of Jesus. So go on to verse 21, and let's see what happens. It says, therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who has been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time he was taken up so he can be a witness with us. So they lay out three qualifications for this replacement apostle. He's had to have been with us since the beginning. He's had to be a witness of the resurrection, and he's had to be a part of Jesus' entire ministry. Well, some might say, well, what about Paul? Paul claimed the title of apostle, that he had seen Jesus after the resurrection. Christ appeared to him. But he wasn't with them from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He wasn't with them throughout Jesus' ministry. And even Paul identified the 12 apostles, including Matthias, as unique and elevated. And he was an apostle with an asterisk beside him in some ways, right? Still an apostle, but different than the 12. Notice verse 22. Well, I already read that one, didn't I? Verse 23. So they proposed two men, Joseph Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Our question of application there is, how can I focus? How can I focus among all options? When you have a variety of options in a choice, it's A or B, and that'll be up there on your screen, how can I focus among all options? You need some way to help determine what it is that God's calling you to. What tools do we see here? Gathering together with other believers, 
praying about or praying in, in general constantly, seeking Scripture to illuminate or determine, using our common sense that God has given us for some qualifications with Scripture and in prayer, and those things help us focus among all the options. So let's move to our fourth and final point. Praying. Though they had prayed from the beginning of this Scripture, though they had prayed, as I mentioned from uh, Luke chapter 24, even before uh, this passage, they were in prayer regularly. They were known for that. They pray specifically here in verse 24, 25, and 26. Praying. And so note what it says in verse 24. Then they prayed. So the 120 praying together, whether Peter is praying for them or Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is paraphrasing the uh, heart of the prayer that they were after. He said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over the apostolic ministry left when Judas departed. They're not saying, God, show us our will. They're saying, God, show us your will. Another key for determining God's will is not my will, but His will. My openness to be obedient to Him whichever way He calls me to go. When I need to make a change, when I need to make a decision, a selection between various options. I pray, I study the Word, I talk to other believers, I use my common sense, but I also surrender my will to the sovereign God of the entire universe. And they do that here. Show us which you have chosen. Verse 26, then they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. Now, why would they cast lots? Lots we think of like throwing dice, but many times it might be a piece of clay or a rock or something like that. And, uh, you know, they'd mark it in a certain way and use that to determine between the two. But same as like if you were going to throw some dice and say, hey, if it gives me this, or use your magic eight ball or shake it up or something, right? There's some chance involved. But the Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, that the lot is cast in the lap, but the Lord determines how it falls. Why did they cast lots then? And we don't cast lots now, and we shouldn't cast lots now. Let me just make sure of that. They did not have the Holy Spirit indwelling them then. They didn't have the whole counsel of God's Word as we do in order to help make decisions. So God ordained the casting of lots for that period of time in order to help clearly determine His will. Not a practice we should go on practicing. You don't see it happening beyond the New Testament or in early church history even to today because we have the Holy Spirit and we have all of God's Word. But notice the outcome. It fell on Matthias and he was added to the 11 apostles. Through their prayers, God revealed to them the answer to their need. That fourth and final question asks us, why is this essential for godly decisions? This being prayer. Why is prayer essential for us to have a godly decision? Well, if I just do it using my own mind and using my own will... Then it's my decision. And since I'm naturally sinful, I run a good chance of my decision being sinful and selfish and self-serving. It could still be right. But prayer, the realization that there is a God and I'm not Him, the humbling of my spirit and my will, 
to say, God, your will be done, not my will be done. Prayer is essential for a godly decision. Of all the ingredients we've talked about today, gathering together with others, praying with others, reading God's word to seek his speaking specifically through his word, using our common sense, submitting to his will. Prayer is the essential ingredient for a godly decision. Whatever changes in our lives, whatever selection we have to make between various options, prayer is the key. You think about this as a model for disciple making. Gathering together with others, seeking godly counsel, sharing biblical revelation with one another, using your common sense, being submissive to God and to others, and a willingness in that submission to do God's will out of humble obedience to Him, realizing that we're sinful and flawed, and He's sovereign and loving, and He wants to guide us. You see, there was only one thing missing for their mission now. They had been missing that 12th apostle and they just by prayer together replaced him and selected Matthias. And now the only thing missing was since Jesus was bodily resurrected was the Holy Spirit to guide them forward in the mission as the Spirit, the church, and the world. God's Spirit speaking to God's people in order to spread God's message that there would be more people for Him. That leads us to our Scripture memory verse for the month as our concluding thought here. And that's from Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Let's say it together. Acts 2, 38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 38. Let's pray. God, our Father, that Scripture foreshadows what's coming and what we know on this side of the Bible's history, who came, and that's the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we're so thankful that you are among us and that you are active and you speak to us and guide us. You help us understand. You comfort us and carry us through. And Lord Jesus, as you gave your life for us and as you sent the Holy Spirit for us, we're humbled and thankful. We pray this morning, if there's anyone here that has not yet repented and trust Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord, that they would do that. And we would know there'd be a change in their life because you'd give them the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing all that is to come in their abundant and eternal life. And God, we pray for those of us that are believers in Jesus that maybe we have a significant decision to make right now that we've just seen in the Scripture modeled how to biblically make a decision. Maybe we have a decision sometime in the future and you need us to hide these things in our hearts and mind and practice these things along the way so that we'd be walking more closely with you, God, in order that we might immediately hear your voice and obey. We thank you, God, for speaking to us today through your word and giving us this loving example. And we pray that we would respond with obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.